If this life is driving you to drink, you sitting around wondering just what to think. Well, I got some consolation. I'll give it to you if I might. You know I don't worry about a thing, 'cause I know nothing's gonna be alright. Hello, I'm Ellie May O'Hagan, and I'm Owen Jones. And this is our first podcast. Pretty, pretty exciting. Pretty exciting. I'm thrilled. You know, you actually don't. I don't have any friends anymore. I just listen to their podcasts. I don't actually hang out with them anymore. We all just listen to each other's podcasts. I never had any friends anyway, so, so that works out. That works out well, doesn't it? In a way, you've all I got left, Ellie. Well, you haven't even got me. So, <laughs> but this podcast is exciting because what we'll do, I think, we'll be this oasis of calm in a sea of. Chaos. Chaos. We're going to try and be upbeat. I mean, we've got to work with the material we've got here, to be honest. Which is not a beat. Uh, but we'll try and... We will take this very seriously, obviously. We'll talk about the, the big issues. Um, and just, you know, avoid rocking the fetal position. It is going to be... Right, we're in... This is authentic. This is raw. This is the real deal. We're not in a professional studio, so it, it might, might be a bit noisy. You know, you'll get the real sort of sights and sounds, or just the sounds, because <laughs> it's a podcast, of, of inner city London. That makes it sound really, like, dangerous, doesn't it? We're actually in Islington. <laughs> We're in Islington. It's fine. Just, it's fine. Just putting it out there. Already cliched. Today we'll be covering Jeremy Corbyn. Um, We're going to sort out the Labour leadership. Everything's going to be fine. Everything will probably Labour on course to win by the end, by the time we finish. Then we're doing Mélenchon, France, presidential race. What's it all mean? And then we're going to lighten the mood by talking about Syria. Cheery, as ever. And finally... Ellie, I've been involved in a terrible, terrible scandal. Not involving what you'd probably expect me to be involved with. Hotel room, oranges, weirdness. Moving on. Now, Ellie, you, my friend, are yes. going to kick this off. Yeah, I want to talk about um, something that has been grinding my gears this week, which is uh, Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour Party, um, to all of our surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Still leader of the Labour Party, to mm. all of our surprise. Um but you, do you know what? Like both of us, me and you, right? Of, of like we've criticised Jeremy Corbyn a lot over the last couple of years. Is that how long it's been? It's been nearly two years, isn't it? Um, it's been a year and a half. Solid year and a half. Been a year and a, year and a half. And like both of us have criticised Jeremy Corbyn quite a lot over the last year and a half for the stuff that he's done since he's been leader. But actually, it's been really getting on my nerves lately about how ridiculous the level of criticism towards him has become. So like this week alone. Um, the columnist Nick Cohen and the editor of the Jewish Chron- Chronicle, Stephen Pollard, said that he was worse than Marine Le Pen. <coughs> the fascist leader of the, the National fascist. Front. She's not only a fascist, she's a court-certified fascist because she tried to sue for being called a fascist and the courts ruled that she couldn't because she was one. Like, two days after they um, they, they criticised him for being worse than Le Pen, she actually engaged in an act of what I think is like Holocaust denial, basically. Yeah, it is. So, yeah, but no, Corbyn's worse. Corbyn is worse than that. I don't even... Anyway. Um, and then the other thing that happened this week is that he uh, released a policy saying that he would uh, put VAT on private schools and then the money accrued from that would go to funding uh, universal school meals for primary school children. And there were a whole host of commentators who reacted to this by saying it was literally like he was like saying, I am going to... Uh, close down Battersea Dog's Home and put a load of puppies on the street. It was like, it was ridiculous. And and also it was like Michael Gove, only like in February, said the same thing. 
The Tories made a decision not to criticise this policy. He's a loony lefty, though, that Michael Gove, isn't he? Infamous. Infamous, yeah. Unhinged leftiness. Yeah, well, exactly. Oh, oh, yeah, also there was a press conference where he wanted to talk about his policy for small businesses, which is where that he would, like, uh, crack down on late payments made to small businesses by big businesses. And journalists just wanted to talk about his response to Syria, which I actually thought his response to Syria was quite reasonable. The, uh, Trump's airstrike on Syria. And then there were all these like headlines like, oh my God, he doesn't want to talk about Syria. He wants to talk about small businesses. But it was a small business conference. So obviously he would want to go there to talk about small businesses. Like I don't turn up to a like, I don't know, a women's um, institute meeting wanting to talk about like pro wrestling. It's just so stupid. And yeah, it's been really, really getting on my nerves. Like the amount of criticism against him has just been completely ridiculous. I mean, that's the thing, because I'm not you, because obviously I'm a you know lefty and, and even though I get... You know, every single day now, I'm a right-wing Blairite careerist who's probably in the pay of the Israeli government, which is definitely true, but I don't know how anyone would know that. Uh, and that's just my mum. But Look, they pay very, very well, the Israeli <laughs> government, right? The pension plan is really excellent. <laughs> it's better than the CIA. They, they always have you in zero hours. I know, it's annoying. Um, but what's, for me, because I'm frustrated, I've said it, lack of vision, strategy. If you don't define yourself, you're defined by your opposition. The polling is no good, in fact... Labour at the moment are heading for a very bad defeat. But my standpoint is, because everyone's have kicked off a little bit, and my my theory is, you know, because I want a left-wing Labour government. I want a Labour government that invests in the economy, that forces rich people to pay taxes, that has publicly owned utilities, rah, 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 I could go on. But my theory is we're heading for a terrible defeat and that will discredit those things. Jamie will resign. Someone on the right of the party will take over and go, rah, look what happens when the left take over. But that said... What frustrates me is, you know, the reason he became a leader is because the people he's up against have nothing. No strategy, no yeah. vision, just nothing. I think that's Yet. why they're criticising him. I think they're criticising him because they know that they're screwed and they're panicked about the fact that they've lost control of the Labour Party and they feel like it's an act of impertinence that the left has taken control of it. And I think especially, like, you know, those journalists who were, like, in the lobby or kind of pundits who would just like text certain voices in the Labour Party to get a direct line from the leadership have now suddenly found themselves shut out from the conversation. And I think they feel like a sense of indignation and they feel like it's an act of impertinence that that's happened. But I think it's their fault because they haven't offered anything for years and years and years. They haven't offered like, um, you know, a solution. Like I think one of the worst things that the Labour Party did in recent years was during the leadership campaign when Harriet Harman insisted that all MPs abstain on the welfare bill, which was a bill yeah. that would cut welfare for the poorest families in this country. And, and like low-paid workers are patronised as the hard-working families, supermarket workers, you name it. Yeah, and if you can't, I just think, if Labour can't stand up for those people, it's just, it doesn't deserve, doesn't deserve to exist. And I don't think they appreciate the extent to which stuff like that has like stuffed them mm. as a party. And, you know, now they're angry that, like, people have moved elsewhere. But people have moved elsewhere because there was nothing there for them. That's the thing. I mean, I think the problem is, is that, I, you know, I, you know, I've said my criticisms of the leadership, but the opponents just, you know, Dan Jarvis. Now, Dan Jarvis, he's a lovely bloke, by the way. He's a Labour MP. He used to be in the army. And after the last election, a lot of people went, well, Ed Miliband lost because, you know, he, he has a weird backstory and, that you know, they went on about his appearance in bacon sandwiches and they went, ah, Dan Jarvis, good looking, good backstory, served in the army. Um, but he wrote this piece, I don't want to be harsh on him because I think he's just an example for the new statesman, 5,000 words. And 
with all due respect, I've rarely re- read 5,000 words that says absolutely just nothing at all. Nothing that, you know, you know, that would inspire anybody. No set of, no clear vision, no strategy, no policies. And I think that's the problem. A lot of people on the right, for example, the Labour Party, have gone... Well, it was probably an error in his motherboard, though. That was the thing with Dan Jarvis. His circuits were all aflay. <laughs> Dan Jarvis bought I am making policy... <laughs> Ellie, I'm not indulging your personal attacks against a lovely guy who has lovely hair and he's all the rest of it. But Hey, I didn't say anything about his hair. He's got great hair, especially the synthetic fibres look very realistic. He's a genuinely lovely bloke and he's symptomatic <laughs> of a wider problem is the point I'm making. And, and I think that's the problem that a lot of the people who don't like the fact Jamie Corbyn won, and I understand that because Jamie didn't even want to win in the first place. And he, you know, the campaign thought they were charging at this door made out of titanium and it was actually made out of paper. And they were like, oh, blind, we've taken over the Labour Party. Didn't expect that one. Yeah. But that's because... God, of- do you remember that? We went to that we victory party, didn't we? We did. And we were all a bit like, oh my God, what do we do now? Um, yeah, and it wasn't the plan. And it was because his opposition was just so woeful and lacked any... And that's not changed. And, and it is true, you know, with that press conference, this so we had this press conference where Jamie Corbyn turned up to the Federation of Small Businesses and actually the people kicking off were members of the Federation of Small Businesses because reporters kept wanting to talk about the polling. They just wanted to talk about uh, Labour's new plans, for yeah, example. selfish, wanting to know what Labour would do for them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Didn't they know that there were polls to be talked about? Lobby journalists needed to score a point and they were there selfishly wanting to know about their livelihoods. Well, that's it, because Labour's plans were actually, they're really good. Late payments yeah. to small businesses, all the rest of it. But all they wanted to talk about was polling. Now, the problem with that then is the only story that will come out of it is, as so the, Matt Zarb cousin, we both know him. He's a, you know, I'd say a friend of ours in a way. Yeah, very talented guy. And he's the former press officer, Jamie Corbyn, recently resigned. And he said, because now he's unleashed and he keeps kicking off. He tweeted, yeah. if Jeremy takes questions... He's Mac Zab 2.0 now. <laughs> no, improved New and updated. If Jamie takes questions and polls at a policy launch, the story will be about polls and not the policy. So how are the polls... Ever improved. So the problem is, he'll do a you know a launch on a policy. Journalists come up and go, the polling is terrible, which it is, by the way. And then Jamie will go, well, can we talk about something else? And then they'll write a story going, Jamie refuses to take questions on his terrible polling. And there's how can anything? Yeah, he's change? damned if he does, and he's damned if he doesn't. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I we could, I reckon we could devote this entire podcast to talking about the mistakes that the Labour leadership has made. Like, I don't think that either of us are like playing down those. But it also annoys me to see all of these people who are supposedly on the side of the Labour Party, you know, like even Graham Jones this week, who's an MP for the Labour Party, was saying, oh, we shouldn't have like a national living wage and criticising Jeremy Corbyn for suggesting that as a policy. And I just think you can't, on one hand, spend all day briefing against the Labour Party, all day bashing the leadership. And then on the other hand, that was the sound of Owen refilling my beer, by the way. I'm so chivalrous. We are drinking beer, you know, beer and politics. We're just sitting around, just, you know, chatting about the state of the world. It's the only way way to get through this year, isn't it, with alcohol or a sedative of some kind. It's the only way Ellie can get through having to spend um, an hour with me. That's true. That is true. That would tranquilise usually. (laughs) Valium. Um, Yeah, I mean, but the, the thing is, though, is I suppose like lots of good policies have come out of Labour in the last week, and it's been observed even by people who don't like Jamie Corbyn. Free school meals, for example a statutory national living wage of £10 uh, an hour, um, and also, for example, tackling late payments to small businesses and actions to defend small businesses. Mm. Do you know what? I think the problem is this, though. See what you think about this, Ellie Mayor Hagen. Hit, hit me with it. Right. Is It's actually quite timid. 
Is yeah. in, so you've ended up, arguably, the danger is, because look, the press was always going to be vicious and horrible and nasty. I always thought that was inevitable and you, you've got to have something to cut through that. But it, it, it's not, they're not asking that much. I mean, people like Stephen Bush at the New Statesman have made this point that it is kind of continuity with what a lot of what Ed Miliband says. You I know, think in some areas he's bolder. Like he, he wants outright public ownership of certain utilities, whereas Ed's just talked about price freezes and that kind of thing. Well, and same... he was always a bit agnostic about things like rail nationalisation, whereas Corbyn's like... Well, it's basically like just Miliband, but kind of revved up a bit. And the danger is I always... Because I'd like them to be more radical, in a way, in what they do. But you end up with something which is kind of a bit timid, but presented as being really extreme. And actually, I'm not saying it should be the opposite. I'm not saying be extreme. but No, but it should be like a radical programme, but made to look moderate and common sense. But I think be extreme, because I think that there are massive problems in this country, like in our economy, in the way that we do things. Yeah, so but I you just want to nationalise everyone's mothers. And that's what you said before we started recording. I only want to nationalise your mother, Owen. She's a lovely lady. And I think everybody should share in her. That doesn't all right? sound right at all. <laughs> yeah, I actually know Owen's mum, so I'm very sorry. Very sorry. So, Ellie Mayor Hagen, can I ask you this? Um, would you say that because of how unreasonable the critics are. Whatever the frustrations, you have a lot of frustrations because at the moment when Labour is heading for quite a bad defeat unless things are turned around. But do you end up thinking that because of the way his opponents behave, you end up going, oh, blimey, I can see why I voted for him in the first place. Yeah, hashtag I'm with him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you didn't. And the other successful political slogans. Um, <laughs> um yeah, I know. It's really annoying. It's really annoying. I preferred it when I like had the space to criticise him. But yeah, last week I just found myself going, uh, actually, I think you'll find Jeremy's not that bad. And it's because it's, it's because it, the criticisms of him are just, they're just unhinged. Like saying that he's worse than, than Le Pen, that is actually bananas. That is a bananas thing to say. She is an out and out fascist. She is someone who leads a party that was founded to bring fascism to France. And she just denied the French state uh, deported Jews, which her, is Holocaust denial. Her dad called um, the Holocaust a detail of history. He's the founder of the party. Mm. Like, to say that Corbyn, who, you know, I, regardless of the issue of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, which, you know, I do think is something that needs to be sorted out, uh, he has spent most of his life campaigning against racism. To, to say that Le Pen is worse than him... It's no, not... all the way around. Oh, yeah. Le Pen is definitely worse than him. To say that him. Le Pen is worse than him is accurate. <laughs> but to say that he is worse than Someone Le Pen... Someone will clip that. <laughs> yeah. That'll go viral. Yeah. Well done. And then all of the moderate commentators will be like, yes, finally, if you understand. <laughs> yeah, um, accurate. She's yeah, finally seen yeah, sense. Well done. Come in, the water's fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> No, but to say that, like, he is worse than Le Pen, it's actually, actually, I'm offended by that, but not on behalf of him. I'm offended by that because I feel like it really betrays a really unforgivable complacency about fascism. She's an actual fascist. Yeah. She's the worst thing that it's possible to be in politics. It's the worst thing to be is a fascist, and that's what she is. And to make all of these really... Um, frivolous comparisons between her and Jeremy Corbyn, I think that's like really dangerous. I don't know why they're doing this. I think they've gone off the boil. I think they've overreached. I think they just need to rein it in. Rein it in, dot com. Rein it in, little. I mean, yeah, that's the thing as well, because also fashion's quite, quite, quite serious, isn't it? Historically speaking, it's not 
not not been great for just humanity in terms of the destruction of the European continent, the murder of tens of millions of people. So when you yeah. downplay the it threat... It was unpleasant, let's just say that. It was it, unpleasant. If you downplay that menace for political partisan reasons... And the other point is, you know, just finally on Especially because it's, like, not even in, an, in the abstract. It's, like, it's here. Like, yeah. she's doing pretty well in the polls and she's an actual fascist. Like, it's not a, a debate that we're having in the abstract. It's, like, this person is preparing to take power in France. And, and just finally on that, I mean... The other thing about that press conference the other day when everyone kicked off about he won't answer the questions about Syria and polls and all the rest of it is one of my main criticisms about Jeremy Corbyn in the leadership is they haven't had message discipline. Stick to a message, yeah. keep to it. That's what the Conservatives do. Long-term economic plan, we're cleaning up as Labour's mess. And what I want them to do is just, if they're talking about business, small businesses and what they're going to do to them, keep talking about it. Don't get distracted. Whatever you're asked, keep talking about it. So actually, improvement. But will it turn it around, Ellie, finally? Probably not. Anyway, on that uh, happy note. Alors, on a parlé un peu de Jeremy Corbyn, mais il y a Mélenchon. You're right, you show off. Just... You don't see me chucking out the Welsh, do you? <laughs> it sounds like English backwards. So, right, in France, France, la France. France has a presidential election uh, this month. It was seen originally, so you've got this guy, Emmanuel Macron, who's seen as the front runner. He's still the front runner, really. Um, he's this guy, he's a former investment banker, um, he's kind of good-looking, sharp-suited, and a lot of people who are kind of... Like Osborne, but without, but with, with the good looks. With, with, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you added that caveat. Mm. It was quite an important one. Um, yeah. But he's seen for centrists who feel, it's all gone wrong, we've got the populist right kicking off, we've got these lefties, everyone's gone mad, we're the reasonable common sense people. You know, their understanding of why... You've got the, you know, the radical right and the radical left who've emerged. You know, they don't see, well, there's lots of discontent with the status quo. It's not working. People have gone for a long fall in living standards. Uh, their future is very insecure. Maybe there's a reason. They're a bit like, this isn't working very well. Let's look for other options. Now, they look at this guy, Emmanuel Macron, who's basically a classic example of somebody who supports free markets but wants to hug gays. So you know what I mean? It's kind of... Like David Cameron. Exactly. And what he wants to do, for example, is cut public sector jobs, cut taxes on corporations, but he loves the gays, etc. And I think, you know, they've hung on to him. And it, and it seems still likely it will be him versus Le Pen, the fascist aforementioned. But things have been upset a bit. Now, I went to France last month to Paris, gallivanting around. The Socialist Party, who currently their president is a, 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 Francois Hollande, Total disaster, elected on a wave of hope, uh, totally alienated people, you know, failed on all his promises. Um, but it, there was a, you know, a, 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 a primary to decide who would be the next candidate. And this guy called Hamon won. He was seen as the left-wing outsider, beat the establishment, the French Jeremy Corbyn. And he was actually, uh, you know, he was not doing great in the polls, but he was doing better than the other lefty, a guy called Mélenchon. Who was a more? Who was a used to be in the Socialist Party, but is a kind of radical lefty uh, leader. He's been around for a while, hasn't he, Melanchthon? He's been around. He ran last time, and there were great hopes, but last time round, he didn't do as well as the polling suggested. So what happened um, is, I went last uh, last month, and I went to Hammond's headquarters, and they were they were all a bit like this. Other guy needs to stand down. Give us a free run. We'll get into the second round. Maybe we'll win. We'll get a lefty as president. Um, and I went to Melanchon's uh, headquarters and went, you know, I said to them, look, guys, these people are saying that they're ahead of the polls. If you stand down and support him, he'll, he'll get in and he could win then. And they were like, no. 
And it, it, what's happened well, now... They proved you wrong, didn't they? Well, indeed, they had the last laugh. Aha! Because <laughs> what happened then is... Uh, what happened then is Hamon uh, slumped and Melanchon now has surged. And one poll suggests he's now uh, third, ahead of the right-wing candidate, Fion. And um, both Le Pen and Macron are going down. So, some are suggesting maybe he could edge into the second round of the presidential race. And it might even be Melanchon, the radical lefty, against the fascist Marine Le Pen. So that's upset things. Yeah. I think, like, m- many people saw Macron as, like, the hope for sort of liberal centrism. Because mm-hmm. the liberal centrism is, like, collapsing across the West. And well. I think, like, many people thought that, like, Macron would be the um, exception and that he would show that, like, that centrism, you know, there's life in the old dog yet. Hey. She's she's not given up yet. And that, and that you know, that if he won, then it would sort of show that there was going to be some kind of resurgence. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, because what happened is you got, you know, like, the old social democrats. And what happened was, you know, you got the rise of the new right in the 70s, Thatcher, Reagan, and all our other favourites. And then you love him. Love, love the love bit the, of Van Rand. Got to love that cheeky bit of Van Rand. And then you got like globalization, which meant, well, what can the state do anymore? You know, all the rich people just take everything aboard. That argument. Then you got the end of the Cold War. You know, I'm not obviously the Soviet Union sucked, but the right just what what a caveat. You're on the History Channel with <laughs> Owen Jones. No, I know. Just to be quick though, <laughs> but after that they were like, you know, there was like, well, free market capitalism has won. Aha. That's uh-huh. the end of it. <laughs> Don't mind the parties thing went. And then you got the financial crash, and a lot of those parties who were always about investment, that was what was left, were like, nope, got a cut. So then there was nothing much left for them to say. And they kind of, everywhere across Europe, they've gone into collapse. Yeah. And, and both the left and the right, radical left and radical right, have benefited. So I think I, they deserve it, though. I think mm. they deserve it. Sorry. Sorry to any centrists listening. Yeah, but then we get Two all these... Beers. Got all these <laughs> Two right, beers. Two beers, O'Hagan's at it again. Got a lot of right-wingers running things. No, I we? totally agree. Like, the, the consequences are totally, absolutely disastrous because the, the the problem has been the resurgence of the radical right in a lot of countries, like, especially in the US. And I, So I'm not saying that I, I'm glad that it's happening. Mm. I'm not glad that it's happening because of the consequences. But I do think that they deserve it because they've just, even though it's the consequences have been absolutely disastrous, they don't deserve to command the popularity of, of the people that they're trying to win over because they haven't given them anything for 40 years. Well, they just don't have much to say, do they? I mean, again, in Germany, you've got this guy, Martin Schulz, who's taken over um, as the leader of the Social Democrats. And he was like, blimey, people are like, he's going to be Angela Merkel. He's ahead in the polls, he's doing well, not going quite so well now, he's going down in the polls. We'll see what happens. But it seems to me that in this country, a lot of people who are not that happy about the left, but they don't really have anything. You know, Hillary Clinton lost against the candidate who was like, was, it seemed more likely an asteroid would hit Earth, Earth, Earth than her winning, well, him in, winning. In a way that it has, really. I mean, that is kind of well, pretty much what it feels like with Trump being president. What's more destructive? Yeah. But so you've got that. And then you've got, you know, across Europe, that kind of politics isn't doing very well at all. And, and it is a case of, you know, they don't have much to say. Now, I still think it's likely probably Macron will win by default because he'll scrape into the second round and people go, well, better an investment banker who wants to cut stuff and not very much else than a fascist. It's not a great choice, to be honest with you. Yeah. But- if I was French and I was faced between uh, Le Pen and Macron, I think not only would I vote for Macron, I'd probably campaign for him because I think mm. the consequences of having a fascist in power in France would be so catastrophic for the whole of Europe that I, I would probably campaign for him. But my worry is, you know what I think Marine Le Pen's thinking? 
getting into a bit of cold psychology about Marine Le Pen in her head. Is she thinking, I don't like anyone who isn't white? <laughs> Partly. <laughs> um, I'd love it if she sued us for that. Um, try it. Yeah. You try it, Marine. Bring it on, Marine. Bring it on. Uh, no, you it's fascist. <laughs> ah, I can't get me there. <laughs> uh, you're Holocaust denying so and so. But anyway, no, but in 2020, she wants to win the next presidential election in 2022. And what could happen is Macron will take over, and lots of people in France are just so angry. And you go to France, people are just angry. They think it's broken. So many young people out of work. They think tomorrow is going to be worse off than today. Rah, rah, rah. No optimism. And if you end up with this president who wins by default and then does all this stuff that doesn't deal with that alienation, then by 2022, people go, do you know what? going to go for the fascist this time and that would be rubbish wouldn't it yeah although i do think it depends on like you know where the left is i think i've always thought that only the radical left can save us from the radical right i just don't think that centrism can so, so i think a bit of melanchon is he melanchon well he's problematic isn't he because he like you know he's not perfect i think some of his opinions on immigration have been a bit dodgy so i couldn't like offer him like sort of wholehearted support because of that but I do think that yeah only the only the radical left can save us from the radical right because basically the center has failed people and people don't want they want a wholesale system change mm. and what they want is radicalism and uh, like the so they either have a choice between the radical left or the radical right because that's what links isn't it everything from brexit to trump on the one hand to you know podemos in spain which is this party which uh, campaigns for, you know, against the cuts, for radical change in Spanish society, um, or Mélenchon, is is that whether it's these new movements on the left or the right, people are going, do you know what? I'm kind of bored of falling living standards and rampant job insecurity and cuts to social provision. We need something different. And the centuries don't understand it. Yeah. They're like, what do we want? Incremental tweaks <laughs> to the system. When do we want it? In due course. Like... That's not appropriate for this era. Like people, when people are angry because they feel the system's broken, they're right. They're actually right about that. Okay, topic number three. I'm just going to segue straight into it. We're going to talk <laughs> smooth about smooth as you smooth, want. Smooth, smooth operator. Anyway, um, yeah, you'll be uh, seeing a lot of those smooth transitions in this podcast. So number three is we're going to talk about Syria. Big week for Syria because Trump uh, authorized an airstrike on um, a military base that he said was used to carry out a chemical weapons attack by Assad. And the, the sort of political fallout of it is still ongoing. So, yeah, I think I was really against it um, and I remain against it because uh, while I think the use of chemical weapons is like absolutely despicable um, and was ho as horrified as anybody else by the images coming out of Syria and while I desperately want a resolution to the violence in Syria I don't think that Trump is the man to deliver that you know he's erratic and emotional and an idiot and why can he succeed where so many other leaders have failed where the US has failed in the region for years and years and years why is it that this ex-game show host who tweets things like I'm never fooled I was the only person to walk out of my Ali G interview <laughs> why is he like the person that can fix this it's crazy to think that he is I think that's issue because no one look Assad is a despicable brutal mass murdering dictator he just is that's just a fact I think and it's annoying you have to kind of make this point because what, what happened, you know, with the Iraq war, if you opposed the Iraq war because you thought, Do you know what, I don't think this will pan out that well. I think it might end up being a bit of a disaster. And they went, how dare you? The, all those people murdered by Saddam Hussein. 
oh, do you like people being murdered here? It was that kind of thing. Yeah. Libya was the same, Gaddafi. And the problem is we were just, you know, I'm not saying, oh, I told you so, given the disaster, the calamity, hundreds of thousands died in Iraq. I'm going to say I told you so about Iraq because so many people in the media and in politics at that time tried to guilt people who were against that war for being yeah sympathetic to Saddam Hussein for being idealistic lefties and all of this and actually we were totally right and what it's not that I want to say I told you so to feel smug it's that absolutely none of them had any repercussions in their careers mm. for advocating this total humanitarian disaster which has left them free to advocate it again in Libya and then again now in Syria and it's odd you say that because I often get people going how you backed Corbyn, you were dis- disgraced, how dare you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, look, we can have a debate about the electoral consequences uh, for the Labour Party, and I've made it clear, you know, what I've said about, you know, I think Labour's heading for disaster. There's a difference between that and hundreds of thousands of people dying, millions being displaced, millions traumatised, maimed, the rise of ISIS, sectarian bloodbath, the destabilisation of the Middle East. And it's frustrating because we... You know, at the time, how old was I? I was like 19, 20 or whatever. I was 17. It was, we're the same age almost. No, we're not. I, you're, a bit, you're a bit older than me. Just live with it, all right? Well, some age better than others. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> Ellie has aged much better than me, just to clarify, <laughs> before I'm punched in the face. So, yeah, it, it was so obvious it would be a catastrophe. We warned about it. We obviously weren't listened to, and that's why so many people were angry. The biggest demonstration... Um, in British history. So, but on the Iraq, yeah, I mean, I suppose that's the point, isn't it? Firstly, every single US military intervention in the Middle East has been a calamity. I think it's gone really well. <laughs> Everyone in the Arab world, from Libya to Iraq, whatever, has been a disaster without exception. So these people are going, oh, it'll be different this time with Donald Trump. Donald Trump's the exception. The other point is, I just thought, well, I didn't really think this, but I'll indulge the point anyway. Some thought naively, maybe, or otherwise, that, ah, there was a lot of unity over Donald Trump. Everyone agrees, megalomaniac, bigger, massive threat to world peace. And as US bad talks. as Hitler. Yeah, I mean, some were really going for that. But, I mean, it was like, this is this is really bad. He's got to be stopped. And then, as soon as you started firing missiles, went, yes. Yeah, it's like... Bring it's, it on. What's so weird is is that, like, there's a guy on... Um, he's a writer and I follow on Twitter called Emmett Renson. He's very good. And he made the comment that, like, everyone was saying that Donald Trump was like Hitler until the point that he actually started dropping bombs. And then they were like, oh, he's not like Hitler anymore. It's like, really? There's this guy, Jeremy Scarhill, who's a brilliant US writer. So I did this thing yeah. in America. Can you I just there? say, if, you listen, if you're listening to this, Jeremy Scarhill, massive fan. Massive fan over here. She fancies you a bit, though. Um, but Jamie Scarlett... Is, I'm not even going to deny it. He's a great journalist and... And, and a and, fine piece of ass. <laughs> Ellie may I can give you behave yourself. So, Jamie Scarhill, he, and he writes a lot about the Middle East, about US foreign policy and the rest of it. And he went on CNN, uh, and I did this event with him in, in America, the, on, in Washington, on the day of the inauguration. We did a counter-inauguration event. I was there. And he did a great speech. And Je- Je- I sound like, you know, really going for it. But Jamie Scarlett, he went on CNN, and he talks about this... Um, uh, liberal commentator, liberal in the British sense, kind of centrist, uh, called Fareed uh, Zachariah. And Fareed Zachariah went on uh, CNN and said um, about the missile strike, well, last night, I think Donald Trump became president of the United States. And uh, Jamie Scarhol went on CNN and said, do you know what? If that, I think Fareed wanted to have sex with that missile strike. And you've got all of these people who are very critical of Donald Trump, massive threat and all the rest of it. Suddenly, you know, just, you know, and including liberal newspapers, all of a sudden just rallied behind him as soon as he started dropping bombs. And I think now Donald Trump's gone, oh, look, I 
get all this applause from all these people. He's already going on about North Korea. I know what this will... I know, we know where the script will end. He'll start, you know, if there's war with North Korea, they'll all go, how dare you, the, uh, to us, that is. What about the people suffering in North Korea? You've got to back Donald Trump. Donald Trump bombing North Korea. And, and, and I think the problem is now is that with someone with an authoritarian mindset like Donald Trump, war is brilliant. Because it's an excuse to get rid of freedom. To be a big and... man, like as, as well, to be a big man, like that's, you know, do you remember that um, thing that he did early on in his campaign when he had those little girls dancing, oh, you know, America, you know, f- to freedom, you know, like we'll crush our enemies, like that weird. I think it, go- it. it was cute actually. Uh, I it was very like cute and endearing. Yeah, yeah, it was cute and endearing, not at all creepy or weird. Um, and like, and I feel like it's through war that Donald Trump can realize this version of himself as being this sort of American strongman who like crushes uh, his enemies and makes America a world superpower again. Yeah. So that's why I find it really irresponsible that they're, you know, talking about how great it is that he's like now waging war on like firing cruise missiles. But also the other thing that I find really irritating about it is that all of the people who are now backing him are normally the people who say that we should... Uh, enact policy because of um, you know ration and uh, rationality and reason and logic and you know have evidence-based policy and all this kind of stuff you know if you think about all of the usual sort of commentators like Jonathan Friedland who was sort of moderately into the idea of it then Tim Farron on the in the Lib Dems all of these kind of people who normally would say well we need to be evidence-based we need to look at things we need to be rational we need to be sensible actually when you try to argue the the case against bombing syria they just reach for emotion straight away they're just like what about the poor children in syria it's like that isn't an argue that is not an argument in favor of it there are other children who will die but the other point is is that donald trump has escalated the u.s war machine he bombed a school in syria killed 30 people a raid in yemen uh, which has been bombed with British and American support, by the way, Yemen, by the Saudi dictatorship, where thousands have been killed, and uh, a raid there, which killed a load of civilians, uh, whether it be in Mosul, where a bomb uh, bombs were dropped and up to 200 people were killed. Like, this guy is killing lots of... Yeah, including kids, but no one is talking about them. Yeah, I think people only reach for these emotional arguments in favour of a certain military action when actually there's no moral case to be made in an mm. overarching sense. Exactly, because actually Donald Trump is actually at the moment, he's, he's let the US war machine off the leash and people are being murdered and killed by bombs at the moment. They're not being talked about. That chemical attack was despicable and disgusting. Like The fact we even have to say that is absurd, but that's how unreasonable opponents of this uh, strike are that you have to even make that clear. You mean people in favour of the strike? Yeah, oh, sorry, in favour of the strike. Yeah, good yeah. point. But it's, but but nonetheless, it's a case of, you know, if I genuinely thought Donald Trump was a potential saviour of the Syria, children of Syria, then maybe I could get on board. But I yeah, think like it was only recently that he said that he would look children of Syria in the eye and tell them that they weren't allowed into America. I'm sorry, but someone who won't allow refugee children into their country has no moral authority when it comes to this stuff. I just don't want to listen to him when it talk, when he talks about babies and children and the moral responsibility of America because if he if that is really what he thinks, he shouldn't be doing extreme vetting on people trying to escape war. So basically, Donald Trump is not the saviour then, is that what we're saying? Yeah, unfortunately, we're going to have what? to come to that... An unexpected conclusion. Right, so finally, um, Ellie, I've got a confession. Go on. I've been involved in a bit of a scandal. What was it? What did you do? Right, so what I did, and actually, 
It's not breaking confidence. I consulted you and others about this. I was asked to do an interview. You did, that's true, you did. I was asked to do this interview with Alistair Campbell, and he's interviewed lots of people like Nicola Sturgeon, for example, and uh, for the uh, for GQ. And I wasn't sure what to do about it. And I, I knew you were like, you're going to get a bit of stick for this, Owen, but yeah, why not? Give it a go. That's what lots of people said. Yeah, I think what I said to you is like, you're going to get stick for it. I suppose it just you just got to weigh up. Yeah, and I just thought, I just, you know what, I like chatting to people to disagree with. Yeah, and you've always said to me that your political purpose is to bring left-wing politics to people that might not think about it. And I think if that is your political purpose, then there is a case to be made for you talking to GQ. So what happened then is I turned up, rocked up, and obviously asked about Jamie Corbyn, and, you know, partly, and I had to answer, you know, and I said a lot of it was directed at, well, look... The failure, your side have nothing to offer, nothing to say, no vision, no strategy. You know, I said, actually, it's a failure of people like me as well. But what happened then? Right, so I did that interview. Most of it was me. I talked about, what about Iraq, Alistair? Hundreds of thousands dead, et cetera, et cetera. And I talked about the... How did he take that? What did he say? Well, he just rolled with the punches. I think he's kind of used to it, isn't he? Because I I went for it and he didn't argue back. He didn't argue back about it. I mean, he's kind of indefensible now, isn't it? It's like... Can you imagine him going, no, I think it's been a great success, Iraq. <laughs> I think it's been a triumph. <laughs> it worked worked out exactly as we planned. Yeah. Only joking, we didn't make a plan. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, I mean, that was a, that's a difficult counter-argument. So we didn't do that. But And I talked about, you know, the failures of New Labour and all the rest of it. So I had to do this photo shoot afterwards. And they um, they said you had, had to dress up in these clothes. I was like, basically wanted to throw a diva strop over it. But the photographer... Can I just also point out to any listeners today that Owen has many talents. Fashion... I would take them somewhere near the bottom. This is why it's just so ironic because, I mean, according to GQ last year, they named me the ninth worst dressed man in Britain below Chris Evans. I think you did pretty well. I mean, <laughs> can you imagine that? Of 65 million people, I'm the ninth worst dressed man in Britain. Well, I mean, half of them are women. Right. But, yeah. um, I don't even understand clothes. I virtually have to be dressed in the morning. So basically, they made me wear this uh, this jacket and trousers and I was just complied. The photographer was a big lefty. He wouldn't be able to do his job unless I complied. So, uh, you know, I did all that. And um, they then printed the interview with a little box in the corner about how much everything cost. And apparently the jacket cost £1,080. This then triggered a scandal. This guy called Prison Planet. And he's got a YouTube channel, which we will not promote. No, we're not promoting him. Anyway, he kicked off going, rah, 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 he bought an expensive jacket, hypocrite. The Spectator jumped on it. They called it jacket gate catchy um they've done two art they've they've done two articles the spectator on <laughs> two this whole article. Uh, one saying that jacket is gonna fly off the shelves well, you should be asking for a cut of the profits i should do well one of them said uh, so the first article was going oh we attacks capitalism but he wears a jacket but the second <laughs> one is is the most desperate attacks i've ever seen they've investigated this jacket the spectator good to know they've got involved and apparently the designer if you're a subscriber to the spectator know that your subs are being well spent i'm not going to say the company's name because i'll promote them otherwise which is not the point but apparently they're owned by a company which has a 55 percent stake in a bahrain based private investment bank so then basically they have links to saudi arabia and because i've campaigned against the head chopping saudi dictatorship the fact i wore a jacket belonging to someone else which apparently this jacket has links to the regime of Saudi Arabia. I'm therefore a hypocrite. I, I mean, I... I think you should turn in your lefty membership card right now. How, how dare you wear uh, a jacket? Do you know what, Ellie? This has been a beautiful, special, I would say, romantic moment. But I think, do you know what? It's time to draw this to a 
brutal conclusion. Much like the political career of Hillary Clinton, we'll draw this to a <laughs> brutal conclusion. That's half our listeners alienated now going, how the dare right you? Half, the right half, the right half. They're like, how, how dare you? So we're going to do right chats, but we're also going to like interview people Preferably people funnier than us, because otherwise... Because we're not that funny. But yeah, can you please suggest people that we can have as guests on the show? Yeah, bring them on. Within reason. Yeah, because we want to have more people come on. So it's not just us two. And also, if you have a thought of a name for our podcast, um, please let us know. Podcast McPodcast face will not be considered. I'm just putting that right out there right now, given the British propensity to name anything that. Or tits or something. Tits, yeah. Should we just call it that? (laughs) (laughs) This is our podcast. Then it would be the tits. The tits. So, yeah, let let us know. And um, we will be back. At some point in the future. Very soon, very soon. We're doing this regularly. Thank you for listening. For listening on the wireless. (laughs) This has been uh, Owen Peter-Jones. And Eleanor May O'Hagan. Bye. See ya. But I don't worry about a thing, cause I know nothing's going to be alright.